And, oh, Father, as we prepare our own hearts now to come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word, and we remember that Your Word is inerrant, infallible, that it is sufficient for everything that we need to know about ourselves, everything that we need to know about You, everything that we need to know about salvation. Oh, God, use Your Word to direct our steps. May it be a light to our paths that we may walk in a way that is pleasing to You. Use this time to glorify Christ, to turn our hearts more fully to Him, and to strengthen Your people, growing us in His likeness. In His name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you need a Bible, we have plenty of Bibles out in the foyer. If we run out of Bibles out there, we have more Bibles back here in the church office. So if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, let somebody know. We'll we'll get one. We want you to be able to take one home. So uh, be sure to let somebody know. But today we'll be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 as we continue our study uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be studying 1 and 2 Samuel. Again, about a, about a two-year study, roughly, especially since we're taking out roughly a chapter every, uh, every lesson now, every sermon now. You know, when it comes to preaching, there's kind of a, an unspoken rule. There's this basic rule of thumb that I, I think kind of qualifies as, as an unwritten rule, and that is that the preacher is never to talk about politics. Uh, never supposed to preach politics. Uh, now, there's a sense in which I, I would agree with that. I'd say that's undeniably true. Uh, my job, if, if you know what the Scriptures say uh, the shepherd is supposed to do, the under-shepherd is supposed to do, uh, my job is not to tell you how to vote. That, that's nowhere in my job description. And not a single one of you, with the exceptions of, I don't know, maybe my wife, maybe my daughter, but probably not even my daughter, just my wife, uh, none of you know how I vote. Uh, and, and that's the way it's supposed to be. That, that's, the way, uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. It should be that way. The Scriptures do not grant any pastor or preacher the authority to shackle your conscience uh, by telling you how to vote, by, by pushing you to vote this way or that way. At the same time, however, our voting must be influenced by our values, and our values must, not should, our values must be shaped by God's Word, by Scripture. And so when it comes to ethics, when it comes to moral principles, uh, I am supposed to talk about that. I am supposed to preach that kind of stuff. Yes, the Scriptures have a lot to say about those types of things. And so every pastor and every preacher must be willing to not only hold to those principles and, and ethics that you find in Scripture, but to point them out as we preach as well. The Bible, in this sense, does indeed influence and direct our political views. And at this point in our country's history, I'd say if you're doing that with with discernment, if you're doing it rightly, you're going to have a lot of difficulty aligning with either uh, of the two parties that we have, either Democrats or Republicans. In 2015, a left-wing cult rose up within the American church, a movement that I have often referred to as uh, the social justice cult. The reason I call it a cult is because they use Christian language, but their concepts are not Christian or biblical at all. But their uprising paralleled the uprising of a social justice 
um, activist uh, movement within the culture at large. And so to a large extent, one of the ways that the social justice cult, the, the, the movement in the world has been a blessing, is that it has revealed far too many very prominent Christian leaders to be far too similar in their thinking to the ways of the world. Now, of course, this cult is what we would call very progressive, uh, and progressivism, if you understand it, is entirely antithetical to biblical Christianity. In fact, it takes biblical concepts and it turns them upside down and backwards. And we're used to seeing that kind of uh, social activism from the political left. But recently... There's a new movement of activism that has started rising up, a movement that really isn't all that different in terms of their method of operation, their their way of groupthink from the social justice cult. And this new movement has come from the right wing and has come to be referred to as Christian nationalism. I want to start today by saying four things about Christian nationalism based on my observations. Number one, it is exactly like the social justice cult, uh, that, uh, the, the way that they came up several years ago, in that there is no universally accepted definition of Christian nationalism. And so it's kind of like nailing jello to a wall. It's very hard to criticize it because there's no agreement on what it even is, uh, just like the social justice cult Uh, several years ago. Uh, Second thing I have to say is at least some people in this movement have explicitly said that the preaching of the gospel is not more important than social and economic issues. A man who writes for Daily Wire, uh, so he's well known and has a huge audience. He's been very active in the promotion of, uh, of the people who are leading the charge on this movement and who would refer to himself as a Christian nationalist whatever that means, he said this past week on social media that he was, quote, hesitant to diminish these problems, that is, social and economic problems in our country, as less significant or secondary to the gospel. And thus, it's not surprising that the third thing I have to say is that many within this movement scoff at the idea that the gospel is our nation's greatest need. In fact, many of them actually scoff at any idea of righteousness. Uh, they applaud Christians using foul language, uh, for one example. Uh, they, they hold to kinism. Many of them hold to kinism, which is a form of racism, as another example. Uh, when, when presented on social media with the idea that the way to have a Christian nation begins with preaching the gospel, one person who identifies as a Christian nationalist said this. He said, quote, we've done that for 247 years and just look at us. This brings me to the fourth thing I'd like to say about this movement. The fourth thing I have to say is that we have a colloquialism in Christianity that goes like this. If it's new, it's not true. If it's new, it isn't true. And if we're being honest, this is a new movement. It's a new movement. Nobody was talking about Christian nationalism 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Nobody was even talking about it 10 years ago. It is new. And in Christianity... If it's new, it is not true. I don't see much truth about Christian nationalism. What I see, to be quite honest, is a ton of idolatry, generally speaking. Political idolatry. 
Now, like I said, there isn't a universally held definition of Christian nationalism, just like there isn't a universally held definition of uh, the social justice cult, and there wasn't in 2015 when they started. So I can't tell you that you should avoid absolutely everyone who's affiliated with this movement. I will advise that you avoid all the leaders of this movement. But what I can say for certain is that God hates political idolatry. He, he hates all idolatry. And political idolatry is just the latest flavor uh, that's rising up right now of idolatry. And many within this movement, particularly the leaders, are guilty of this charge, as far as I can see. But remember this, if and when you decide to evaluate this group for yourself, remember this, God hates political idolatry. He hates all idolatry. The Scriptures warn us of this with very straightforward language. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that one of the first things listed there is idolaters. Idolatry is deadly. And politics makes it easy to justify idolatry. So it's something that we need to be especially on guard against. At this point, if you're a person who hasn't been a Christian for very long, or if discernment just isn't your your strongest point, I would advise you to completely avoid this movement. But otherwise, I would just advise you to be careful about aligning with a movement that is not only new, but is at least also very close, uh, depending on the person, I suppose, to being politically idolatrous. Political idolatry isn't anything new. I hope you realize that. Uh, God's people have always been tempted to idolize politics, to put their trust in uh, politicians or political institutions. As we continue in our study of 1 Samuel today, uh, we should remember that we've seen the way that God has tried Uh, that Israel has tried to use God uh, to achieve victory out on the battlefield against the Philistines. Remember that they brought the Ark of Yahweh out onto the battlefield thinking that it was kind of a good luck charm. It was going to ensure their victory against the Philistines. But God caused them to lose, and to lose badly. And not only did they lose, uh, but they lost the Ark of Yahweh. The, The Philistines brought that home with them. For seven months, anyway. Uh, For seven months, it caused them plagues and problems. And after seven months, the Philistines uh, decided to bring the ark back to Israel, only for Israel to still disrespect and disregard God's holiness. And so for 20 years, the ark of Yahweh was put away in a Gideonite town. After 20 years, what we saw in chapter 7 was that uh, they repented, Israel repented, and Samuel led them in repenting before God, repenting truly before God. That's what we saw throughout chapter 7. By the end of the chapter, the Israelites were uh, restored in their fellowship with God, and Samuel reminded them of God's sovereign help, his, his, his uh, grace that had gotten them to that point. He sets up a stone, an Ebenezer, uh, by which they could remember that thus far the Lord has helped us. That's what he said. Uh, back in chapter 7, and that this was their hope. The fact that God has been their help, their aid. That He has given them the grace to get to this point. And He wanted them, Samuel wanted them to remember this forever. Not just the present generation, but for generations to come. Their faith was to be in God and not in any man. 
Now, we don't know how much time passes between chapters 7 and 8, but it's apparently a few years, but not many years. Samuel is still around. And as we come to chapter 8, we're confronted with this delicate subject of political idolatry. That's what this chapter really gives us a picture of. But the point of this chapter, the point of this sermon, is that God hates political idolatry and He will discipline His children as a means of breaking them from it. We must therefore make sure that our hope, our faith is in God and not in politics, not in politicians or political institutions. Toward the end of chapter 7, Verse 15, we were told this. We said, it said, now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It sounds like a story that's going to end by saying, and they all lived happily ever after. But then you just get a few verses later into chapter 8, and you see that that was absolutely not the case. So the next chapter, chapter 8, begins with Samuel in his old age. Again, we don't know how much time has passed. But this is the text we come to today, chapter 8. Let's look at verses 1 to 5 to begin. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. So at some point, we don't know if it was before chapter 7 or after chapter 7, we just don't know. At some point, Samuel married and had children. Uh, We don't know exactly how many children he had, but... We know that he and his wife had two sons. Uh, But as this chapter begins, Samuel is an old man at this point. Uh, He undoubtedly knew that his time on earth was not going to to last forever. He wasn't going to endure for several more generations. And thus he realized that there was something of a a pressing need for him to have a replacement for uh, the, the duties that he had had somebody who could step in and take over those duties when he's gone. Now, there's no indication that Samuel ever strayed from his walk with the Lord. And so I'm sure that his solution involved a desire to do things God's way, but Samuel tried to provide for this need himself by appointing his sons to be judges over Israel. Uh, I think it's probably reasonable to suspect that he got this idea probably from the way that priests were appointed. Uh, it, was, it was nepotism, which means your, your son or your, your children take your place when you're gone. Uh, and that's how it was supposed to work with the priest. There was a whole family assigned to the priesthood. Uh, and I think it's also maybe uh, reasonable to suspect that he probably remembered the way that Eli had tried to do the same, had tried to install his sons to take his place when he was gone even though that was a miserable failure. But Samuel was obviously like any parent. He wanted the best for his kids. He had high hopes, high expectations for his kids, for his sons particularly here. And that's reflected in the names that he gave them. The name Joel means Yahweh is God, and the name Abijah means Yahweh is our Father. 
So these are names that are very significant, and he gave them to them undoubtedly because he had high hopes, high expectations for them. But then we're immediately told, verse 3, that Samuel's sons were not a good fit uh, for the office and for the responsibilities to which they had been assigned apparently by Samuel. They did not walk in their father's ways. Their father's ways, by the way, were God's ways. Samuel was still walking in the Lord's ways, but his sons did not. So they weren't living their lives in the way that God would have them live their lives. Instead, they turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Sounds just like Eli's sons from several chapters ago. Again, there's kind of a play on words here we should see. Uh, You'll remember that the cows that were used to bring the Ark of Yahweh back to Israel didn't turn aside, didn't turn to the left or to the right, but we're told that his sons did. So those cows were more faithful to God than Samuel's sons were. What a shame. But this reminds us of Eli and his sons and the way that God disciplined Eli for allowing the evil of his sons to go unchecked. If you're wondering, by the way, why God was so hard on Eli and and he doesn't seem to discipline Samuel the same way, I believe the answer is because Samuel and Eli hold different offices. Uh, Eli was a priest. Samuel was a prophet who operated in the capacity of a judge. Uh, And there is just a higher standard that's given to the office of the priest. Uh, We see that in the New Testament as well, right? We see the principle reflected in the way that James warns us in James chapter 3, verse 1, "...let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment." And every pastor knows that verse and lives by that verse, or they should. But this is a practice where the son takes over for the father. That's a practice called nepotism. It's when a son is appointed to assume his father's job simply by virtue of his relation. Uh, Nepotism, I should note, is not, absolutely not, a biblical concept. Uh, It was a concept that only applied to the priests in the Old Testament, but the office of priest was ultimately fulfilled by... Jesus, yes, by Jesus, who is still our high priest, right? In the New Testament church, nepotism is actually entirely contrary to how leaders are to be appointed, uh, and yet you see it happening every now and then. But no, leaders in the New Testament church are to be appointed based on A, their calling by God, uh, not only the inward calling that they feel, but that inward calling that they feel is supposed to be confirmed by the church that brings them on as their under-shepherd, Uh, and B, their qualifications, not on their family line. But what we see here is that the elders of Israel, who should be the wisest, you've got problems when the elders are not the wisest. But the elders of Israel foresee that there's a problem. And and they're right. Uh, Maybe it's because they remember or have heard the stories of uh, Eli and, and his sons but they don't want Joel and Abijah to take the place of Samuel once Samuel's gone. Good for them. That's, that's right. They shouldn't. They shouldn't want these two men who don't walk with the Lord, who don't walk in the ways of their father who walked with the Lord, uh, they shouldn't want them to, to, to serve over them. Uh, they shouldn't want to be led by men who don't know or don't walk with the Lord. And neither should you, by the way. Neither should you. 
But the problem is, and this is where they fall into error, the problem is they don't go to the Lord for an answer. They don't ask the Lord to provide. They don't seek Him for a solution. Back in chapter 4, you'll remember that the elders of Israel made the disastrous decision to bring the ark of Yahweh out onto the battlefield. It was the elders who made that call. And this generation of elders here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is really no better. The elders in chapter 4 wanted to use and manipulate God, and the elders here in chapter 8 just completely have no interest in God. They, they just completely disregard Him. In both cases, the elders acted on their own wisdom without seeking godly counsel. They come to Samuel not with a question, but with an order, with a command. They say, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. So it's not that they're just saying, we need somebody who can replace you. They're saying, we actually need somebody who can do things that even you, Samuel, haven't done. We need to operate just like the nations do. It's a disaster in the making. What should they have done? They should have at least sought Samuel's counsel. He is their spiritual leader. So their going astray involves bypassing the counsel, the godly counsel of the one whom God had given them to lead them and guide them spiritually. Leadership in the New Testament church has similar responsibilities. We're to feed, we're to minister over the flock over which God has made us under shepherds, and the flock is given the instruction in Hebrews thirteen seventeen to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. It's a heavy verse. Let me just say this for now. As many false teachings and false teachers as there are out there and as accessible as they are these days with books with the internet with all kinds of media as many of them as there are out there right now you need to know that you can come to me or to one of the elders here at the church if you have any questions about this leader or that leader or this book or that book or whether you should be going to this conference or that conference because it's so easy to get caught up in a movement that has gone doctrinally astray. Friends, there are some huge, huge ministries out there that you should be avoiding entirely. Now, most of the, most of the teachers that you find on the internet, uh, especially if you're in you know, Reformed circles, I, I have no problem with. But there are some who have made their way into even Reformed circles who uh, have a very subtle but very deadly error out there. Uh, one of the errors that you see is monocovenantalism. And you're thinking, what in the world is that? Okay, you've got the, the, uh, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works, right? And monocovenantalism takes them together. And so you don't have gospel. You don't have gospel and law. You have gospel, which is not saving, which is a false gospel. Uh, so if, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's the guys who will say stuff like, well, faith and faithfulness are basically the same thing. Oh, no, they're not. We're not saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Amen? Are we saved by grace through faithfulness? Christ's faithfulness, but not ours. Not ours. 
So let the elders and let me help you navigate through these types of issues because they are very complicated. I'm right up on them. I study up on these things. You guys know that maybe that uh, the, the emphasis of my master's degree was apologetics. I'm very familiar with all of this. Uh, but the thing is, we, those of us who serve as elders here, we have this responsibility that God has given us to watch over your souls. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. This isn't just a suggestion, you know. And believe me, as an under-shepherd, I feel the weight of this responsibility in this verse. The duty assigned to elders is enormous. In fact, it's more than any elder can handle on his own. Here's my confidence. Here's, Here's my hope in that. I know that God provides the grace that I will need to do what He has called me to do. But because these people do not come to Samuel for counsel, because these elders lean on their own wisdom instead of coming to Samuel, they make a decision which I'm sure they believed was wise, but it was worldly. It was deadly. It was going to lead them astray. But their thinking seems to have included something that you see a lot in the modern church today. Their thinking, central to their thinking, seems to have been this idea that, hey, it works for them, why wouldn't it work for us? After all, if the world can do it, why can't we? Richard Phillips notes this, he says, quote, How often it is said today that by copying worldly approaches to recruitment, marketing, and product delivery, the church can expand God's market share in the world. End quote. Do you see how this type of thinking is what leads Israel into political idolatry? Political idolatry always involves prioritizing things like comfort and power over God. The Israelites wanted to make sure that they'd have someone in the future who could keep them safe from the Philistines. They needed someone powerful, or so they thought. They needed a king like the other nations, or so they thought. That's what would allow them to keep their borders secure and their people safe and comfortable, to keep them as a, as a vibrant power in that region. What they really needed to do was to trust God for these things. But political idolatry often involves a stubborn refusal to wait on the Lord and or to believe that God will provide in His time. They demanded that they be appointed a leader when they wanted one. Because they didn't apparently believe that God would provide one at the time of His own sovereign choosing. And so what we need to see is that political idolatry is often very, very closely related to a lack of faith in God. They wanted a new order. They wanted a new governmental system which would basically negate, basically nullify any need that they might have to trust in God. Oh, it'll be so much easier if we just have somebody who can do this you know, for us instead of trusting in a God that they can't see with their eyes. Political idolatry always involves prioritizing things like comfort and power over God. Political idolatry often involves a stubborn refusal to wait on the Lord and or to believe that He will provide. And political idolatry is often closely related to a lack of faith. God hates political idolatry. 
He hates when we put our trust in things other than Him. So let's see how Samuel and God respond to Israel's political idolatry. Let's continue in verses 6-10. to But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. Samuel hated this instruction that they come to him with. He hates that they demand a king. But it wasn't their demand that he hated as much as he was displeased, I'm sure, by their blatant disregard for God, their blatant idolatry. But in response, Samuel keeps his, composure, keeps his composure and he does what the elders of Israel should have done from the beginning. He prays. He stops. He's angry. He's upset. He's displeased. But he doesn't act out in it. He prays. What a wonderful, godly, wise response he models for us here. I'm sure that he wanted in his flesh to lash out in anger. But before he does anything, he puts it in the Lord's hands. What a great reminder that every obstacle, every lacking, every insufficiency, every need that we face should be prefaced by prayer. Now God's answer might seem a little bit startling to you. Obviously, he knew this was coming because nothing takes him by surprise, right? But God isn't indignant. Uh, At least he's not as indignant as we might expect him to be. Uh, So God has three things, essentially, to say to Samuel in response. First, verse 7, first God uh, assures Samuel that he, that, that Samuel was not the actual problem. They didn't reject Samuel as their leader. And by the way, it's natural to feel like people have rejected their spiritual leader when they don't seek, when the people don't seek spiritual counsel from them. Rather, it's God that they have rejected. So what Samuel's feeling is, is obviously like, like he's been the one that's been rejected. And that's, that's normal. That's natural. But God assures him that it's actually God that they've rejected. And political idolatry at least often does involve rejecting God, at least to a degree. Rejecting what he has provided. It often involves not trusting that he has put his people in the circumstances that are working uh, for their best. The promise that we have in Romans 8.28 is that we know that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. By the way, you know that that applies to Christians in North Korea. That applies to Christians who are in persecuted places. Places where if you want to identify as a Christian nationalist, you'll just be dead tomorrow. So yeah. Yeah. It involves not trusting that the Lord will provide and not trusting that the circumstances you're in are actually ordained by God for your greatest good. 
So it wasn't that Samuel was a failure. He wasn't a failure. And that's what God's assuring him of here. He hadn't led Israel astray. He hadn't let them down in any way. Rather, this instance of idolatry was just the latest instance of idolatry in a long, long history of Israel backsliding and repenting and backsliding and repenting over and over and over again. We see it throughout Judges. We've seen it so far throughout eight chapters of First Samuel as well. This is the pattern that Israel has had since God took them out of Egypt. That's why God explains to him in verse 8, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So this is their pattern all along. Samuel has not done anything wrong. Now these words actually give comfort and assurance not only to pastors who have people in their flocks who have wandered into false doctrine, uh, but it also gives assurance and comfort to parents whose children grow up to not believe. As long as we're faithful to teach and to model what is biblical, what is true and right about God, it's not that we have failed. Rather, it's that when people reject the Lord, it often looks on the surface and it often feels on the surface like it's about us, like we did something wrong or that we've failed. But the truth is, they've rejected us or they've rejected our ways. If we've been biblically faithful, they've rejected us and our ways because they've rejected God and His ways and His truth. The second response that God gives to Samuel is to tell him to go ahead and give the people what they want. Give them what they want. Let me just say this. When God does something like this, it should really cause us to step back and think when we see that God responds to the rebellion of His people by giving them exactly what they're asking for. I can say this with all certainty as I look back on on my own life. I am so thankful unto God for the fact that He has closed so many doors in my face, that He has refused to grant so many of the things that I asked for or that I aspired to be or to have. Uh, Early in my adult life, uh, He closed so many doors in my face. And at the time, I I didn't understand why He would do such a thing, but I'm 51 now. As I look back on my 20s, 30 years ago, I see that those things that I asked for, that I aspired to have or to be, those things wouldn't have been for my good at all. So with that said, be very careful about what you ask for in prayer and be very careful about feeling excited when God gives you exactly what you asked for. Because the fact is that one of the ways that God disciplines His children is by handing us over to the sins that we love. Why? So that we'll learn to hate those sins so that we'll be humbled by those sins, and so that we may learn to walk and delight in His ways rather than our own. The third response that God has for Samuel is to instruct him exactly how to warn the people of what would happen uh, once they're given what they are asking for. So he says to Samuel, uh, Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And that's what we're going to see in the next verses, uh, verses 11 to 17. Let's look at those. It says, He says, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons 
and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants that sounds pretty terrible if you ask me i mean it's a pretty detailed accurate description honestly of what you see in every instance in which one person is set up to rule over a people without any system of checks and balances to hold them accountable But this is what they're asking for. And as you look through this passage, what you'll notice is that there's one word that you keep hearing over and over. It's a dominant word throughout this warning. It's a verb. Take. Take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys. He will take a tenth of your flocks. That's six times you see the word take here and none of them are good. It doesn't say uh, one time he'll take good care of you. It's almost as though God is urging them through Samuel to see how much will be taken from them, how much they will lose by forsaking God for a human earthly king. It's a terrible trade. It's trading diamonds for dirt. Where there is a spiritual problem, politics offers no solutions. Where there is a spiritual problem, Politics offers no solutions. And that is the main concern, by the way, that I have with the Christian nationalism movement. Uh, There are many problems that I have with this movement, such as the racism, the the kinism that's held by many of the leaders in the movement. But the big one is that politics are not a remedy for a spiritual problem. And in Israel, in Samuel's day, the issue is the same in, in our own country, in our own day, at the core, there's a spiritual problem. What's the solution? The solution is not a human leader. The solution is not to have more laws. The answer is the gospel. Preaching the gospel. The answer is to repent and to trust in the Lord. And proclaiming that message is the church's primary mission. That's, that's why we're here. You'd have to be a fool to partner with any movement that pushes back when someone says that the answer to a spiritual problem is the gospel. I tweeted on on Twitter or X or whatever it is these days uh, this past week that the church's primary mission is to preach the gospel. Nothing else even comes close in terms of importance. If we can't agree on that much, we won't agree on much. But the fact that many who identify with this Christian nationalism movement pushed back on that 
coupled with the fact that I was being told that we need to really pay attention to what this, uh, this young man who sings a protest song in which he curses and takes the Lord's name in vain, we need to listen to what he's saying. It tells me everything that I need to know about this movement. Friends, it's not a Christian movement. It's a misnomer. It's not a Christian movement. It is a worldly movement. It is a conservative movement. I believe that. And there may be some Christians caught up in it. I'll I'll go with that. But at its core, it is a worldly movement. We don't need a conservative uprising in our country. What we need is a revival. For not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah prayed back in chapter 2, verse 9. Zechariah 4, 6, For not by power, nor by, uh, but by my Spirit. Let me try that again. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how the battle's won from a Christian biblical perspective. So God urges the people here to see all that they are going to lose. All that's going to be taken from them by choosing to trade God for an earthly king in an act of political idolatry. In the end, they will be right back where they started in Egypt. You yourselves will become his servants, God warns them. Now this isn't only true in a physical sense, it's also true in a spiritual sense. Let me say it this way. If sin is going to be your master, you have much so much to lose, and you have nothing to gain. Jesus warned in John 8.34, everyone who commits sin is a slave or servant to sin. Paul warned in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14, therefore do not, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The truth of the matter, friends, is that sin takes and takes and takes and it never gives what it promises. What it does give, it gives headache, it gives heartache, it gives despair, loneliness, depression, emptiness. Sin takes you and makes you its slave. As I said before, sin is like a taxi driver who tells you that he's going to take you down to the gala downtown only to keep on driving once he hits that point down to the dirty part of town where you're left for dead. In the end, the Israelites would greatly, greatly regret this decision. And they will cry out to God, but God would not answer them in that day. What a terrible, terrible exchange. What a terrible trade the people are so willing, so eager to make. God could not have warned them more truthfully, more graciously, uh, or more accurately. But the people had made their minds up. They should have heard this and repented, by the way. That's what they should have done. Instead, their attitude seems to have been, whatever, God, we can handle it. What foolishness pride before the Lord produces. And that's what we see in this passage as it comes to a conclusion. Let's look at verses 18 to 22. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. 
but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. It's a pretty serious warning that he gives them. And the people just could not care less. They don't care. They they apparently don't believe that the things that they're asking for will really be as bad as God is warning them they will be. They want a king. And they want a king now. They want a leader, they say, who will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, they say. They don't want to be involved in wars with the nations. They don't want to have to trust God that way. They want somebody who's going to do it for them. We'd see the fruit of this horrible decision, by the way, come to pass, especially under uh, King Solomon, David's son, who would spend, yes, seven years building the Lord, this, this spectacular, beautiful temple for the Lord, but 13 years he would spend building an even more luxurious place for himself to live. Uh, Solomon would take and take and take to such an extent that when he would die, the people of Israel would beg his son, who takes his place, King Rehoboam, to lighten their load. They, they go to him in First Kings chapter 12, verse 4, and say, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. And what was King Rehoboam's response? He ends up rejecting wise counsel and he seeks counsel from young men who respond to him by saying, tell them this, tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That's what we see in uh, verses 10 and 11. So it's not going to end well. Friends, the church's mission in the world begins with exclusive devotion to the Lord. And once that's lost, things start to fall apart. That's what we see happening here. They want to claim exclusive devotion to the Lord. They want the benefits and they want the blessings, but they don't have the exclusive devotion to the Lord. That's the church's mission. That's where it starts, is with exclusive devotion to the Lord. We must serve Him in the ways that He has instructed us to serve Him. We aren't to serve Him in the ways that might seem best to us or the ways that are most popular with the world or you know, the, the way that the world serves their gods. We don't serve our God the same way. We find this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, by the way. This is a biblical principle through and through. The next highest priority that we have is to live our lives in a manner worthy of our calling. That is to say that we are to forsake worldliness. We should not be like the Israelites who want to be like the world, who want to be like the nations. No, we are to forsake worldliness, forsake sin, and live in a manner that is holy. We find this again, Old Testament and New Testament. But what we have to understand is that what we see here in the 8th chapter chapter of 1 Samuel is that you cannot claim to have exclusive devotion to the Lord while simultaneously 
having unholy conduct or unholy speech. Right? And that's what's happening here. They're, they're, they're saying the right things, they're claiming the right things, but really they're not doing the right things. You cannot call for others to live holy lives and to believe the gospel apart from having a, an exclusive devotion to God. You can't call them to, to live rightly apart from having the means by which they may live rightly. And the reason for this is simple. Faith in God, devotion, exclusive devotion to the Lord, and conduct, they, they stand or they fall together. But it starts with devotion to the Lord. Devotion to the Lord is vertical, and conduct or, uh, is, is vertical, and conduct is horizontal. Apart from God's grace, people will not, indeed they cannot, Romans 8 tells us, do what is pleasing unto God. They will not do what he requires. That goes for you and me, and it goes for unbelievers as well. Apart from his grace, we can't do what God requires or what pleases him. God demands from us what we cannot do. Why? So that we don't rely on ourselves. So that we don't make the same mistake that the Israelites are making here. So that we learn to rely on his grace and on his providence instead of leaning on our own understanding. Israel's stubbornness should remind us that head knowledge will not change or empower people to live rightly. Neither politics nor education, uh, giving people information, can ever remedy a spiritual problem. The gospel is the remedy for a spiritual problem. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' words, he says, quote, it is a tragedy that so often the church has imagined that her function is to try to reform and improve the world. End quote. That is not our primary calling. No, our, our function is to preach the gospel and to walk in his ways before the world. Now, of course, God's ultimate plan did involve a king. His ultimate plan for reigning over his people involved sending his only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us and to reign over us as King forever. Isaiah wrote this of him. He said, The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That's from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Of course, this is, this is a reference. Isaiah is talking about Jesus here. He's our God. He's our King. But He is unlike earthly kings. And so we can't expect to look like the world. Earthly kings take and take, but Jesus gives. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. He came not to enslave, but to free us from the penalty and from the power of sin, the guilt of of sin. Friends, God hates idolatry. He hates political idolatry. And He will discipline His children, as we see in this chapter, as a means of breaking them of it. In light of what we see here, in light of this truth, we must be sure that our hope is not in man but that it's in God. Not in politicians, not in politics, not in political movements, not in any political institutions, in Christ alone. 
That's where our faith belongs. Jesus is the King that we must serve. And so I urge you today to forsake devotion to every king and worldly leader. Devotion to them is a judgment in and of itself. But to trust in and to yield ourselves unto Jesus is the way to eternal, everlasting blessing. If we want to see the moral condition of our country improve, that's the message we must proclaim. Because this message, the gospel, is the wayward rebel's only hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the stories of Israel and how they instruct us, how they apply to us even today. Thank You, O Lord, for sending the one true King, the Lord Jesus, who would ask You to send the Holy Spirit, who would give us understanding. But we pray for more than understanding. We pray that we would not only understand what we have seen here today in Your Word, but that we would heed the warnings that you give us. We pray that we would not only be hearers, but doers. Oh Lord, as we hear this, we're reminded of how impossible it is to do what you command. And yet, we thank you that even this was so that we would learn to trust not in our own understanding, but to lean on you, to trust in you, to put our faith entirely in You. So wean us, Lord, from trusting in man, from trusting in human institutions. Break us away from these things. Discipline us if You must, but teach us, O Lord, the blessing of exclusive devotion to You through Jesus Christ our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.